More than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. You guys are sort of all over the world, it seems like. It's kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. Here on Inspiration Dissemination. there's actually photographs of this data set stretching over a much longer period of time. They're now converted into basically mathematical shapes, and we can now analyze the statistics of this shape. Good evening, listeners. Good evening, listeners. Yeah, let's go for it. You are tuned in to 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. My name is Grace Dietzler. And I'm Lisa Hildebrand. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student at OSU or a postdoc, we um, have decided that we'll also talk to postdocs (laughs) now, and you're interested in coming on the show or you just want to find out more about all the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration, where you can find out all about our up and coming guests and links to our Twitter and podcast pages. Inspiration Dissemination is recorded live. And tonight we are lucky to be joined by Anna Nicholson from the robotics department here at Oregon State. Welcome, Anna. Hi, thanks for having me. Welcome to the booth on this rainy Sunday. <laughs> it's a little brisk outside. Yes. <laughs> is it May? Is it really May? All right. It does not feel like it. <laughs> um, Anna, you, we, we, we went on a very interesting journey in our pre-interview, and I think we're taking a sort of non-traditional approach to our interviews, which I think is exciting. So we're going to start with something big, because you have sort of an an ethos or like a big life goal, a big lofty life goal. So can you can you tell us what that is? Yes, I do have a big lofty life goal. Um, my big lofty life goal is to develop and help um, institute AI and robotics that help humans and humanity as a whole. Humans and humanity. I love that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So this is something that's sort of driven both my uh, personal goals and then also my research goals as well as my future career goals. So um, it's it's fun to have a, a big lofty life goal to kind of drive all of these things. Yeah. And it's sort of one that has no like timeline to it. It's just kind of like you pick up knowledge and skills along the way and you're working towards this thing that may happen. I don't know, in 10 years, in 20, in five, who knows? Yeah, um, a big vague life goal is great because you can never fail at it. As long as you're working towards it, you can't fail. I love that kind of being flexible with what the end result actually is. Like it's kind of it can be kind of anything you define. You define it. Yeah, Um, and you can also kind of play around in, in different spaces that kind of contribute towards this big life goal, which you kind of talked with us a little bit about during your pre-interview, some of the components um, that would go into developing AI that benefits humans and humanity. So there were four spaces. Can you tell us about what those kind of were? Yeah. So these broadly kind of fall under this humans and humanity idea. Um, So the first one is um, the technology itself. So how do we develop artificial intelligence systems and robotics 
um, and technology as a whole in such a way that it benefits individuals um, on an individual day-to-day basis. Um, And the second one is really how do we talk to and work with technologists and get them to have this um, centric view of uh, technology that can benefit people and benefit individuals and also humanity as a whole. So um, getting technologists and technology companies to think beyond the bottom line, to think beyond what is going to make them money, which app is going to make them money tomorrow, uh, and think more about sort of the benefits and harms of the technology. The third group that I uh, that I think about a lot is the general public. So both how they use the technology, how they think about tech technology, what of it they actually understand. Mm-hmm. Um, do they understand and even care about privacy as a whole uh, in regards to their cell phones? Or are they willing to completely give up all privacy in order to have this thing benefit their day-to-day lives? Mm-hmm. Um, and then finally, also at a very high level, the, the people who are developing policy um, and how technology and um, and AI can be integrated into society as a whole. So this is policymakers, um, people both at the, you know, in, on the level of an individual city. So I know New York City um, has a policy advocacy group for technology privacy. Hmm. Um, and so all the way from a, an individual city all the way up to the national and international level. Um, so there's all of these different groups that have a lot of say in how this technology is developed um, and how it is distributed and um, positioned within society. And it really requires a a view of all of these groups and an understanding of how all of these groups um, understand the technology and play into this in order to roll out technology that is beneficial. Hmm. So we have, okay, so we have these like four distinct spaces that are distinct from each other, but also connected. So we have the tech itself, then the technologists and tech industry, the general public and policy. What? How does that tie back to like I bet your big lofty life goal? Are you trying to become an expert in one of them or trying to do it all? What's What's the plan? <laughs> I want to do it all. Uh, I always joke that I have about eight big, like eight lives worth of uh, career goals. Um, so I um, currently I am focused very heavily on the first one, the technology. Um, so I am doing a PhD in robotics that is very heavily focused on individual lines of code and how they play into the behavior of a system. Um, the tech itself. The tech itself, mm-hmm. right. So that's where I'm really focused. Um, I do have some prior experience in the technology industry, so I have that form of perspective on um, how people in, you know, I, I lived in San Francisco for a long time. How do people in the, in the tech industry think and work? Um and so, so far, I've kind of covered those two. I've started to cover the policy piece um, in regards to uh, I did a summer internship. Um, I realize I'm getting off topic of the actual question, but um, <laughs> so far, I have covered the uh, technology piece, and that's really where I've been focusing so far. But in the future, I plan on sort of covering all of these other spaces as well. Uh, and like I said, it's about eight lifetimes <laughs> worth of goals, and I would like to do all of it. Did you, so you did a little bit of tech policy experience, you said. Mm-hmm. So how, what do you feel is the current kind of climate of the way that the technologists and people making the policy are, are kind of interacting? Um, so I have a very, a, still a fairly fresh outside perspective of this. Um, but from what I've been able to gather, there is not a lot of understanding of technology and um, input from technologists in Uh, specifically in D.C. is where a lot of my understanding comes from. So, for example, um, there's a group called Tech Congress that just started up a few years ago. And Tech Congress was started by a former staffer uh, in Congress 
who basically anytime he had a question about technology, he could not find a single person to answer his questions. And mm-hmm. the only people that he could find that could reliably answer his questions were the lobbyists on behalf of, of for example, Google and Amazon. He thought that was extremely problematic. Mm. Um, and so he went out and started Tech Congress that now puts technologists into Congress uh, on nine to 12-month fellowships. Um, and there's more and more of these fellowships popping up. So it is becoming more of – there is there is starting to be more of this institutional knowledge within these um, legislative bodies – um, but we're not quite there yet, and there's still a lot of need for technologists. Um, so I know that, for example, I think it's Georgetown. I don't remember which big law school over there just started a tech policy-specific master's program oh, wow. hmm. um, that they're bringing in technologists, and they're they're essentially giving them a one- or two-year deep dive into policy in order to sort of bring them into the sphere and, and get them knowledgeable on both sides. Mm. Um, and so there is this need for um, for this. And it's it's not just a technology problem like this is any there is a need for this with any science. Um, right. To bring in the the knowledge of uh, that scientific sort of that scientific understanding into how we actually write mm-hmm. the law um, and how it is going to actually be implemented on the on the low level. Um, so there are these fellowships for scientists and now technology is starting to be a much bigger space for it. Mm. And so I guess. Do you do you feel like you're you're already able to kind of be like fill that gap because you've played sort of a little in 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 these in these like the tech itself and the technologist space, but also in like the policy space. So you have like at least you've seen behind the curtain for both of those already. So do you feel like you're sort of getting to a point where you could be someone to fill that gap? Ideally. Um, so the. The little bit of policy experience I have was I did a summer internship with Brookings. Uh, the Brookings Institute is a tech, uh, sorry, is a think tank in D.C. Um, and I did a summer internship with them, and it was very early on in COVID. And so it ended up, um, I didn't end up getting a lot of sort of the the exposure to mm-hmm. um, the policy side as I wanted from that internship, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. But um, I did get to talk to a lot of people, and through sort of being very interested in this and being interested in technology, tech policy in, in general, um, I have gotten a lot of exposure to um, those people. So I don't necessarily have the knowledge of policy that I would need, for example, to go and and write a policy. Mm-hmm. But in order to apply to those fellowships, I um, I definitely have that level of of understanding and knowledge. Um, that's actually the the very first thing I plan to do after grad school is uh, start to apply to those fellowships and um, and be in D.C. for a few years working in that sphere. So Nice. Yeah. It's awesome that you have a, a plan already. It's <laughs> <laughs> what we all long for yes. as graduate students. <laughs> yes. A light at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> so I guess in order to... Um, fully be that person who's able to kind of play in each of each of these spaces as you've mentioned you kind of need to like acquire knowledge um in each of this and as we've agreed you're well on your way you've you've already you know done several experiences and years in in some of these um kind of um different levels but let's talk a little bit more about the tech itself space that you've been working in because that's kind of what's been taking over your life for the last four-ish years of, of your PhD graduate career. Um, 
And your, your, your time here at OSU is, is basically split into two research projects, one which is completed and one that you're just embarking upon. Um, so let's talk about that, that first one first, <laughs> um, which was all about looking to get robots to help with infectious disease scenarios. Can you tell us a little more Very about timely. the... Yes. Yeah. Yes. Very timely. It ended up being very timely. Uh, yeah, this grant has been going on in that lab for a few years now, and uh, the, yeah, the goal was to really help um, improve patient outcomes in infectious disease scenarios. So, uh, as with any research, we sort of take that very high level, broad idea and pick out our one tiny little piece out of it. Um, so, my one tiny little piece was looking at how robots behave um, in sort of a a long-term deployment. So I looked at essentially if you have some form of helper robot in a hospital, um, and these these technologies actually do exist right now. So some form of, of mm. essentially a nurse aide in a hospital that can go fetch medicine or mm. has a crash cart on it that can come and provide um, those needs. Um, how does that robot react to different scenarios? Mm. Mm. So for example, if it's carrying something delicate, it's probably going to take a different path to get where it's going um, in order to avoid maybe a bump in the floor or there's, you know, a very heavily trafficked hallway. So it's going to want to take a different path than, for example, if it needs to get somewhere very urgently and maybe has a light on the top of it that says, everybody get out of my way. Mm. Right. So these are very different scenarios for the uh, robot to operate in. And so we were looking at how the robot could um, basically change its behavior to uh, best fit these scenarios um, while also trading off between different um we call them costs, right? Like the, what I mentioned earlier of, um, you know, people in the way or a bump, those are considered costs. So how to take multiple of those into account and sort of trade off and, and do those trade offs automatically, uh, to account best for the situation at hand. So that was really the first project that I worked on, uh, was looking at how robots get from point A to point B, mm-hmm. um, depending on the context they're in. And that seems like a, a challenge, but really important in a highly unpredictable place like a hospital, Mm-hmm. things changing all the time and new information coming in. Yeah. Um, so it requires basically one of the things we were doing is faking data of uh, the ideal would be you'd have a robot that records over time, which hallways, um, you know, how much time it takes to get through a hallway mm. or how many times it's bumped into in a certain hallway um, or how many people it encounters or how many times it, you know, has to move out of the way of if it's an ER situation, how many times it has to move out of the way of the gurney, things mm. like that. Um, so can take those t- that type of information into account while doing all of this planning. You just said, I, I think you just prefaced all of that by saying ideally. So is that is that something <laughs> w- that we're heading towards, or are there robots um, that are already doing that? Uh, the robots can actually already do that. So wow. um, yeah. if you live in Corvallis and have experienced the sh- Starship robots, the little yeah. white robots that yeah. drive around campus, um, <laughs> that deliver food on campus, so they actually, while they're driving around, they, they track... Um, for example, where they have to stay for a long light at a uh, long time at a stoplight, mm. or where it's super heavy foot traffic mm. and they constantly have to get out of the way of of um, students. So this this idea is already out there, and they uh, we actually uh, heard a seminar on them a couple weeks ago, um, and they were talking about basically changing the robot's decision based on mm. this information mm. that they've gathered. And I went, oh, hey, that was the project. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's what I did. <laughs> Whoa. Um, <laughs> it came full circle. Look at that. Um, yeah, so this is technology that's already pretty much out there. Um, my research obviously took did what research does, which is sort of added on to the problem mm-hmm. um, to the point that it became novel. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So, 
I've definitely seen quite a few of uh, quite a few traffic jams of those oh, yeah. of those starships. <laughs> yeah, I, I hope they learn. And, like <laughs> neither of them will move out of the way, so they just stay there for like ten minutes. I watched a rally go through campus the other day in front of uh, the library or in front of the MU. I don't remember which one it was, where all of the robots are sitting out front and just watching the robots like try to get through the people no. and back up and try to get through again. There was just like four of them in mayhem. It was fantastic. It was kind of cute. Yeah, they are. I just at some when I've when I've seen those like I mean I've seen like eight backed up oh, in yeah. front of like a dorm mm-hmm. but waiting to cross the road and I'm like by the time the last one mm-hmm. makes it isn't the food cold I don't know how good the heating in there is I but think they're insulated okay yeah, okay, okay. Um, someday I'm just gonna have to do it because <laughs> <laughs> and they say don't they say have a good day or well, go to say, I heard one the other day making R2D2 sounds <laughs> Oh, I don't know if that's licensed. That would be an interesting question. <laughs> well, I've maybe heard. not official. <laughs> little, little robot beeps. Robot beeps. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so that was your first project. Yes. Um, so what were some of the kind of some of the tangible things that you learned in that project that you feel like you can take now into some of these other into your current project or into um, some of the spaces that you have identified for your life goals? Um, so the first thing that I've learned both from that project and being a robotic student in general, uh, I joke that robots are malicious compliance machines um, <laughs> because they they do exactly what you do. I mean, it's like computers, right? Robots are basically computers on wheels and they do exactly what you tell them to do Mm. and oftentimes what you're telling them to do is not actually what you want them to do Mm. um and that was definitely the case with that project where it would it would do what i told it to do and i was like well that's not what we actually want um (laughs) so that's definitely a big lesson in working with robots Mm. is they are malicious compliance machines um the other interesting thing and i don't know if this is necessarily something i i learned but something that's really interesting to explore um and this sort of um feeds into the the project that i'm working on is is this idea of how do we trade off between different um, costs or uh, different components, Mm. um, different goals or objectives, um, you know, in a computer, in a piece of computer code? Because even as humans, we're, this is a challenge for us, right? Mm. So if you think about going to the grocery grocery store, um, you know, you know that the organic stuff is better for you, but and it's more local, but it's also more expensive. So you kind of have to perform that trade off in your head of, well, which one am I going to do? Mm-hmm. And we do this all the time with, um, you know, if you buy a car or you rent a house or any of those things, you're sort of trading off these different goals or objectives um, is how we look at them from a robotics perspective. But you're, you're trading off these different ideas and saying, like, where am I willing to sort of give up on one thing to get more mm-hmm. of another? Um, and there's never really a right answer. And robots and AI really want that one right answer. Mm. Um, so having to trade off between different goals or objectives is actually a really hard problem um, that's been studied for a very long time. But it's, an, it's a very interesting problem, especially as we get into um, ideas like how do we institute ethics and, um, you know, big broad goals like health in an mm. infectious mm. disease scenario. Um, and so that's something else that I really got out of this project that I'm taking forward with my my next research project is this idea of trading off between ideas and values and um, at both a very, you know, low level of sort of cost first, you know, cost benefit, but also a very high level of which of these a very high level of objectives am I going to um, really focus on here? 
Yeah, let's let's jump straight into that second project, which is kind of just beginning, but it mm-hmm. plays in both the tech space, but also uh, potentially a little bit in that policy space. So it's called AI Caring, or you're part yes. of AI Caring. So tell us what that is. Yes. So AI Caring is an NSF institute, um, which basically means that there are five different universities involved, uh, OSU being one of them. It's a $20 million five-year grant uh, institute, technically. Um, and so there's all of these different groups involved. I think there's over 40 PIs on oh, the wow. um, on the grant. It's a huge, huge grant. Um, and so it just started. It kicked off in, I think, October. Mm-hmm. And so I ended up switching labs to go work under uh, Dr. Con Tumor in order to work on this um, project because this is really – sort of all of the pieces I've been looking at and excited mm-hmm. about and and a lot of the reasons I came to grad school. So it um, the goal of AI caring is essentially to um, develop AI systems that help people. It's called age in place. So people with mild cognitive impairment, which is MCI, um, sort of the early stages of dementia. Mm. Um, how do we get help them in their homes so that they can stay in their homes longer um, and be more independent day-to-day in their day-to-day lives? So um, this project has, or the the institute as a whole, has a lot of really interesting pieces. So there are some, um, we're working with OHSU, so there are some uh, doctors on the grant. There are some people, a lot of people within the robotics and AI community, but also some people that um, have a background in medical ethics, Mm. in philosophy, in Mm. ethics, all of these different groups. So um, it's sort of this this very broad, interesting space to play in um, with this very tangible uh, ideal of helping humans, right? We're we're trying to put technology in homes so that people can can live in their homes longer mm-hmm. um, and and be independent and stay in place. So, and for for this project, what what the plan is for you in terms of the the tech itself? It's um, I guess a little less about path making, mm-hmm. but it's a little more about looking at how you can get multiple robots, multiple AIs to make decisions together or to like work towards, towards a common yeah. goal. Can you give an example of that, for example? Yeah. So uh, just to clarify what you just said, yes. So uh, the first project I was doing, the the decision that the robot was making was how to plan a path from A to B. Right, yeah. Um, And so this is much more of a high-level decision-making rather than the the very low-level decision-making. And it is, instead of a single robot planning a path, it is multiple different robots making higher-level decisions. Mm -hmm. Um, Which may have path-making involved. Which may have (laughs) path-planning involved, right? So it's, um, but it's more along the lines of, um, you know, robots picking up different tasks, or in this we call them agents, and some of the agents might represent um, humans or some um, uh, some other service. So you can think about one agent might be um, associated with the the daughter or the son, and then the sort of a central agent could give them tasks. So, for example, mm. like you're better at vacuuming than your brother, so we're going to go ahead and let mm. you you know mm. assign you the vacuuming task and how to make those decisions. Um, on the fly. So it's it's um, the goal is to over time learn the individual's um, preferences. So both the person being cared for and also we call it the care network, right? These different people that are helping them um, in their day to day lives. So learn their preferences and take those into account while these agents are making decisions. Mm. Um, and so we're still really in the in the scoping phase of what decisions are we making? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and we actually had. Uh, We're getting to the place of, you know, one of the things we've been talking about is um, how to help the person eat, because Mm -hmm. as you as you age, your your dietary needs change. And also um, 
you know, certain people as they age become less and less interested in food because you're um, sense of smell starts to go away, um, your sense of taste, right? Like all of your senses start to dull. And so they become less and less interested in food. Um, and so how to get agents to make decisions that do these balancing trade-offs of the flavor versus the nutrition and especially the nutrition for the person mm. um, where, you know, somebody, uh, for example, a diabetic is going to have a completely different set of needs than um, somebody who has high cholesterol. And so how to sort of balance and trade off between um, health and nutrition and also the person's preferences, What what's going to make them happy, right? Like nobody is going to be happy eating dry lettuce <laughs> and a piece of like boiled chicken for dinner every single day. Um, I don't know anybody that would be, <laughs> at least not me personally. Um, so how to sort of balance the nutrition and, and um, uh, you know, the cost of food and the person's mm. happiness um, and how to do that on an individual day and also over the course of a week and a month and a year and learn that person's preferences over time um, and learn also as their dietary needs and their preferences change. And so there's all of these sort of very interesting questions about how can AI systems help basically offload the human cognitive needs of both the individual and their care network, Um, you know, because planning meal planning takes a lot of time and energy yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. right like my partner I want a robot. And I, yeah we, we sit down for probably an hour to an hour and a half every week to like pick our food and figure out what the grocery list is and all of those things and if you can get a system to kind of even provide here's a balanced meal plan and you go mm. yeah it looks great yeah. it's all added to the grocery list here's what's in your fridge right so you can have a networked fridge that knows what's in your fridge knows how many apples you eat a week and that can feed into the system and so um if you start to look at where the technology is going and, and uh, where this technology could be taken, it starts to be this really cool, interesting problem of how do you balance all of the needs of an individual mm. and of a home as a whole mm. um, uh, in and how much of that can we sort of offload to these systems in order to help people be able to have more free time, for example, or more time with their kids or things like that. So. Mm. So this all sounds really kind of science fiction-y at this point. Um, it makes me think of uh, like Smart House or yes. um, like the Jetsons, the robot. Um, but there's actually, there, there's already AI and robots in our homes now. Can you talk a little bit about that and also maybe what the robots of the, of the future kind of look like? Like what would a robot that does that look like? Yeah. Would it be a robot? I don't know. Um, uh, so that question is very interesting. There's a... <laughs> There is no formal or agreed upon definition of what a robot is. Mm. Um, so one of the one of the professors in our program likes to do a fun thought experiment of is a rock a robot because it can sense gravity. It can it, we we do uh, sense, think, and act is the sort of mm. three steps of a robot. So it can sense gravity. It um, can't really think, in my opinion, but it acts by, you know, being forced by gravity. So he he does sort of this thought experiment of, is a rock a robot? Um, Hmm. So there is no sort of specific definition of what a robot Hmm. is. Um, But you, some of these technologies do exist. So for example, there are smart fridges that can keep general track. I don't know how good they are, but can generally keep track of what you have in your fridge. Mm -hmm. Um, You can imagine a similar system in, for example, built into your cabinet. So you have a pretty good idea of the inventory of your food. Um, And then you have um, different networked um, uh, apps that can do, for example, can pick um, your food list for the week. Those can be incorporated into your grocery list. Mm. That can be sent off to something like Safeway. 
um, or the different, uh, you know, the task rabbit or something like that that mm. can go and actually pick up your groceries and bring the groceries back to your house. And that right now can mostly happen, auto- not quite automatically, but for the most part, automatically. Oh, wow. mm. um, if you sort of hook up three systems together, mm. right? Mm-hmm. So, but the technology exists for that to all happen right mm. now. Um, and so some of these things we 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 think that like Rosie as a robot doesn't really exist right now. And that general purpose robot does not. Mm-hmm. Um, that is a very hard problem that many people have tried to solve for a very long time. Mm. Um, but a lot of the sort of individual robots do exist mm. uh, or mm-hmm. the individual AI systems do exist and can be, uh, if worked right and massaged correctly, can be sort of integrated together in such a way that you can make a lot of these systems actually a reality. So, yeah, it's so funny that like there's no like you know agreed upon definition or like what a robot looks like. I think in my mind, when someone says robot, I think of like the starships on campus, yeah. or you know, like like a you know like a cartoon robot. Yes, yeah. like an actual physical thing that has like a a, a head and a body and like mm-hmm. you know rotors for legs or whatever. But I mean, it, a robot is also something like Google Home or Alexa, mm-hmm. a Roomba. Aruba. Yeah, Aruba yeah. is a great example. Um, another great example I like to use is the Nest. Um, oh. The Nest uh, uh, thermometer system in the house. Oh, So they yeah. sense by uh, detecting what the temperature is in your house. They oftentimes, a lot of those networked smart home systems actually now learn your preferences over time. Mm. So they learn what time you turn up, you know, when you turn up the heat, how much you're turning it up. Um, you know, if somebody has gone through during the day, maybe the like kids turn it up and then turn it back down when dad's not home, (laughs) right? Like they kind of learn these preferences over time and then they basically react to the changing preferences over time by Mm. actually changing the underlying system. So if you think about it, the the nest system is actually a type of robot. Mm. Um, it's just, it doesn't have that. Oops, Sorry. That's my cat's food alarm. <laughs> oh, no. Hopefully someone else is feeding the kitty. <laughs> yes, somebody else is feeding the kitty. Uh, I forgot to turn that off. That's okay. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so the the we have this very anthropomorphic idea of sort of the head and arms and body mm-hmm. and legs or wheels of a robot. But there are a lot of different systems that exist that can be viewed as a robot mm. um, that aren't necessarily – don't necessarily have that physical form to them but still – basically interact with the physical world in some sense. Mm. Now, what is kind of the role of that kind of, like you said, anthropomorphizing (laughs) robots in getting people like um, elderly people and people with minor cognitive impairments to Mm -hmm. to trust a a robotic system? Like, I I have no idea. Are people more likely to trust like something that looks like a little human or... I don't know. Question. So it is a great question. Um, this is a huge, huge area of research within AI mm. and robotics. Is uh, is AI trust? So actually, within the AI caring project, there is an entire research topic that is just about trust. Um, mm. And I don't necessarily have from a from a research perspective. I don't have. I haven't done a ton of the reading mm. on that. Um, but there is an entire field of research for. AI and robotic trust um, and human robot interaction and how does that work and how do humans view robots in different settings? Mm. Um, I feel like I would trust a cat robot <laughs> personally. <laughs> if my if my home care robot looked like a little cat, I would do whatever it wanted. There's uh, in Japan they actually have a a uh, oh, I'm trying to think of the word, but it's basically a, a partner robot. 
um, that looks like a little seal uh, oh, that sits in people's so laps, and they have they do have different robots that like sort of react to you know that are sort of like a pet that react to the person <laughs> by if you pet it it purrs kind of thing. Yeah, oh, that sounds so lovely. Like that, yeah. <laughs> so speaking of trust, obviously one of those four spaces that you mentioned early mm-hmm. on was the public, and the public is a large part of it of all of this and sort of the importance of educating the public on the privacy of AI, Mm -hmm. what it can and can't do. So can you describe some of the privacy issues potentially related to AI in homes that help people age in place? So for example, a Google home, like what Mm -hmm. are some of the issues surrounding that? Yeah. So there's a, um, one of the things we talk about a lot within the AI Caring Grant is this trade-off between privacy and autonomy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't mean autonomy of the system, I mean autonomy of the person. Um, so basically, are people willing to have um, have their kids put a camera in their home so that if they fall, they, you know, it, they're not laying on the floor for four days, mm-hmm. right? Because that is a huge uh, risk for elderly adults. Um, and so it's this trade-off between privacy and autonomy. And where for each individual, it's going to be a totally different place that they're going to draw the line. Um, But one of the challenges, especially with an older population, is they don't necessarily understand what's going on. And most people don't understand what's going on with technology, right? Mm -hmm. Like um, how the information is gathered, what information is being gathered, how it is used, um, you know, whether if it's quote unquote de-identified, as in it's sort of collected in aggregate across an entire population without any identifying features. Um, How can that be used? How can it be actually traced back to them in the future? And so there are a lot of really big open privacy questions, both for an individual, you know, making these trade-offs of how much of my privacy am I willing to give up um, for this additional autonomy, but also on a broad scale of how much data should we be allowing these companies to gather? How should that be able to be used? Because right now it's very much a free-for-all. Um, data is more valuable than gold. Mm-hmm. And I think it is the most valuable mm-hmm. commodity that is traded right now. And this is a, a really timely topic mm-hmm. um, because if you've been on the internet lately, there was a couple of days ago a tweet that went viral um, advising people who use menstrual tracking apps mm-hmm. uh, to delete the apps off of their phone because, well, well tell us tell us why. Um, yeah, that's kind of a concern. so... Um, it, the basically the uh, director of the of cybersecurity, I believe, at EFF, the Electronic Founda- Frontier Foundation. Oh, I don't, I can never remember what EFF stands for. Um, but they're basically a huge uh, privacy and cybersecurity uh, pr- proponents. Um, she tweeted out basically saying, if you are a woman uh, who uses a period tracking app, delete it now. Otherwise, your data could be potentially used in the future against you um, if you were ever tried for getting an illegal abortion. Mm. So uh, because part of the part of it is that if you're using these apps over time, like I said, the apps can learn about you as a person. And mm. so as a woman, that is a very personal thing, right? Like these apps are great for tracking your period over time and learning sort of what's abnormal and what's normal and, mm-hmm. and when things are going to happen. But also the, if there are ever any anomalies there is a potential that that data could be used as you maybe you got pregnant and got an abortion, or if you are suspected of having abortion, they can go back and potentially find that data on you. Um, because mm. the way these companies, a lot of companies will collect data in aggregate and not only use it to improve their services, but also, like I said, data is 
one of the hottest commodities right mm-hmm. now. Um, and they will sell it off to other groups. Um, and usually it's done, like I said, de-identified. Um, so they, they remove your name and your, you know, your phone number and all of those things. But there's a lot of evidence that shows that even de-identified data can be re-identified mm-hmm. with AI systems. Um, and so the data could is it is completely possible that that data is collected, sold off, and can be traced back to you, even if the company itself is not um, giving up that data. Additionally, one of the challenges with a lot of these healthcare-type apps is they are not covered under HIPAA, which mm. in the United States is our, our healthcare privacy app. Mm. Um, and so they are not covered under HIPAA, which means that the rights to that data are completely different than, for example, if you gave this information to your doctor. Mm. So if you give the information directly to your doctor, um, that's covered under HIPAA, and there are certain steps that need to be gone through in order for people to subpoena that or for Mm. that to be used in a court of law. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you give the data to an app, it's up to that app and their privacy settings of how and when they use that and how it can be subpoenaed. Mm. And so it's this really big open issue, not only for... I mean, it's like you said, very, very timely this week um, for period tracking apps, but also in general for any of these healthcare apps, right? Mm. So um, the example I use a lot is smartwatches, Mm. and um, they now can detect your heartbeat. And so over time, uh, they can learn your heartbeat and start to find anomalies. And again, that information can be sold off to, for example, to your um, insurance company and used to change your deductible. Mm. Um, and so there's a lot of really big implications as to how and when we use these technologies and how the privacy settings are set up, um, especially around healthcare data. And this is, again, tying back to AI caring, mm. uh, a huge concern for for an elderly population who already have extremely high premiums mm. um, or already have sort of this host of different healthcare issues. And some of them they might not want their family to know about. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them, you know, if they talk about it in front of the Google Home, the Google Home might now know that like they have cancer and they don't want their kids to know that mm. yet, those kinds of things. And so how this works both sort of on an individual, going back to the privacy question of how the technology can sort of interrupt our privacy both on an individual one-on-one basis of the technology now something knows something that maybe you don't want your kids to know. Um, and then also on a, a broader basis of collecting and using our healthcare data because it lives outside of the HIPAA structure um, and how that can be disseminated to groups that may not have your best interest in mind. It's, it's really kind of scary that there's no legislation about that right now. That, like that's le- that's completely legal. Anna, go right. make policy about it, <laughs> quick. <laughs> Protect us all. Um, I feel like I just took a very sip- sassy sip of water. Um, <laughs> just like yes, you are correct. Um, I'm sure that there is someone. I, I don't know what the legislation is around it right now, mm. but if there exists legislation, it is not strong enough. Yeah. Um, and I know that. So, for example, I know California is starting to put in place a lot of privacy restrictions mm. um, for California residents, which is actually really, um, really, really great. And the the GDPR, the European um, Privacy Act, mm. came out a few years ago. So the really great thing about, even though we are not covered under either of those, the great thing about those is that a lot of companies now basically have to create their products 
to the strictest standards. Mm. Um, and since they don't necessarily want to roll out multiple different versions of their products, oftentimes they'll just create it to the strictest standards and go forth with mm-hmm. that. We see the same thing in car manufacturing. Um, is you, They have to create the cars essentially to the strictest mm-hmm. standards of – so, for example, if um, if France has much stricter um, – like seatbelt laws or uh, safety standards than the U.S., they're not mm. going to necessarily create two different platforms. Mm. It's a little different with technology because it's a lot easier, quicker and easier to deploy. Um, but a lot of companies will just sort of across the board just say, ah, oh, we're going to go to the stricter standards so we never have to worry about it. Mm. Um, so the more legislation like that we see come out, the better, the better it will be for everyone. I feel like I've learned a lot, but it's also a lot of scary knowledge that I have gained. So let's let's think happily. Uh, and uh, for you personally, ultimately, like, is there a specific like career that you see yourself working? Is there does that exist already? Is there like a one thing that you would? You're like, that's my dream. This is a really hard question because, like I said, I have about eight eight, eight lifetimes <laughs> worth of uh, career goals. So, so you have eight perfect – so you have eight I, dream yeah, careers. I have eight dream <laughs> careers. Um, so generally my very vague – to go along with my uh, lofty life goal, my very vague life plan is um, once I – graduate hopefully sometime in the future every every PhD I feel like is just like I hope I graduate someday um so if and when I graduate uh like I said I my plan is to um apply to some of these fellowships in the DC area um so by that time I will weirdly enough will actually already be living in DC um so apply to some of these fellowships in the DC area there are also other groups in that um, area that are not just sort of putting technology technologists into um, Congress and the actual legislative bodies, but also, for example, there's the, it's called the Jake, J-A-I-C, the Joint AI Consortium, mm-hmm. uh, which is exists within the Pentagon. And it looks at how does the DOD as a whole use artificial intelligence um, and when and how can we and should we use it, um, both from a technological perspective, um, but also from a moral and ethics perspective, um, and what makes sense uh, from a defensive perspective. And so there are there are sort of these different ways to play in this space as a technologist and as somebody who understands what AI is um, at the very low level, uh, to play in this space and actually influence how we make these decisions uh, on this very high level. Mm. Um, so there's that's one of my goals is <laughs> basically be in DC helping make those very high level decisions. Uh, there are also groups such as uh, the Partnership for Artificial Intelligence, which is in San Francisco area. Um, and PAI looks does research on how to um, create best practices and um, the, the actual research on how to integrate, for example, how to make your system less biased um, and what bias looks mm. like in AI mm. um, and how to make systems at the, so this is getting back to sort of the technology itself, right? How to make these systems in such a way that they account for these um, bigger, broader harms and try to mitigate them. Um, there's also think tanks. There are sort of all of these different directions that I could <laughs> potentially go down uh, that play to these sort of four different spaces that I talked about mm-hmm. earlier, right? The The technology itself um, working within the tech industry to push tech companies and also the the people who are actually creating the code to really make these 
to think about these things and mm. make these considerations as they're making their decisions on a day-to-day basis, um, working with the public and figuring out um, what it is they want, what it is they need, how uh, these systems are inflicting harm and how they can potentially benefit. Um, and then, like I said, the legislation. So there's there's a lot to do in all of these spaces. Uh, and this isn't really an answer because I want to do all of it. Um, well, and, and Anna, I have no doubt that you will be able to accomplish whatever you set your mind to in these areas. I sure I, hope so. I Thanks. look forward to seeing um, seeing you in the the news headlines. And yes. <laughs> your this future is, career. This has been one of the fastest 45 minutes yes. of, oh, of my life. I feel like I have, I have learned so much. We yeah. laughed a lot. This yeah. was a great interview. Thank you so much, well, Anna. Thanks for having me. We are nearing the end. Which means it's time for our two traditions. Mm-hmm. So first... Uh, we ask for a piece of advice. So tell us what your advice is and who it's for. Uh, my advice is for everyone, which is have a lofty life goal. Um, I So I actually wasn't, uh, I never planned on going to grad school uh, until I figured out my lofty life goal. And then I got really mad that I had to go to grad school in order to <laughs> sort of work towards my lofty life goal. Um, so I am here out of spite. Uh, <laughs> But no, basically have a lofty life goal, right? It's it's okay if it's a big, scary life goal. My my lofty life goal is AI and you know AI that will help humans and humanity. Like there's no possible way I'm accomplishing that in a <laughs> lifetime. But it drives a lot of what I do and makes the work that I do interesting. It also makes it a lot easier to make decisions about what mm. I will and will not do, um, and where I spend my time. And it it makes for a fascinating life to have a lofty life goal. And and it's like you said at the beginning, if you have a big lofty life goal, then you can never really fail as long Mm -hmm. as you're like in tiny increments work working towards it. Yep. So I think that's great advice. (laughs) And then our second and final tradition is that you get to pick the song that outros you. So tell us what your song is and why you um, picked it if you want. Yeah. So uh, when you told me to pick an outro song, my very first thought was uh, baseball walk on songs um, (laughs) because I I have been a huge I have loved baseball my entire life uh, and I have been a big Giants fan my entire life. Um, and so the song that I picked is I left my heart in San Francisco. I was born and raised in the Bay. A lot of my family is still in the Bay. So it's very telling for that piece, but also it is the song that plays after every Giants win, uh, (laughs) in the stadium. Okay. All right. Yeah. Well, here we go. Um, this is, I left my heart in San Francisco. Thanks so much, Anna. (laughs) Thanks for having me. The loveliness of Paris Seems somehow sadly gay The glory that was Rome Is of another day I've been terribly alone And forgotten in Manhattan I'm going Thank you for listening. If you want to support the show, tell your friends about it and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at KBVRID. This theme music was performed by the OSU Drumline and the intro jingle was created by Olin Hamat. Special thanks to the supporting staff at KBVR that allow the show and podcast to be possible. 
This show was started by Jean Kamvar and Joey Hulbert in 2012. To learn about our current hosts, other graduate students at Oregon State, or if you want to be part of the show, visit our website at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration. Thanks again for listening and stay curious, my friends.